Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the Sanford School. Today, my wonderful guest is Dr. Monica Teslakai. Dr. Teslakai is an enrolled member of the Zuni Nation and is currently an associate professor here at the Sanford School of Social and Family Dynamics at ASU. In all of her work, Dr. Teslakai incorporates a strengths-based focus on the role cultural pride and cultural engagement play in shaping cognitive development and well-being in American Indian children. She is someone who I admire greatly, not just for the work that she does, but because of the passion and empathy that she exudes to everyone she meets. Monica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. So Monica, the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm gonna ask you three rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just icebreakers to sort of get to know you better on a personal level. And then the ending ones are just to get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is just to try to answer them off the top of your head in about a sentence. Does that sound okay? Yeah. All right. So question one, Monica is what is your favorite TV show? Well, I love The Amazing Race because especially right now during the pandemic, because I always like to see all the different countries they visit and imagine if my husband and I could do the task and if we'd win and it'd be a dream to be on it, but I doubt that it'll ever happen. <laughs> I love that. Okay, question two is, are you a pizza fan? And what is your favorite pizza topping? Of course, everybody loves pizza. Uh, mushrooms, I'd have to say mushrooms are my favorite. I am a huge mushroom fan too. I met someone once who was like, mushrooms are gross. I don't understand how you could ever have them on a pizza. And I was so offended. I think they're <laughs> the most underrated topping. Definitely. <laughs> All right, and question three, Monica is, are you more of an early riser or a night owl? I'm definitely a night owl. I am the one person who always says, don't schedule me at 9 a.m. And I have a 9 a.m. stats class this semester that I have to teach. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I would definitely rather stay up all night than be up early. <laughs> I'm the same way, but here we are at 9.42 recording this podcast. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you can uh, overcome your natural tendencies if when you have to. <laughs> so... Monica, you have had such a fascinating career in academia, but I really want to get to the beginning. So can you talk to me a little bit about what were you like when you were a kid in school? Were you like a big fan of school? Were you sort of begrudgingly into subjects? What was your relationship with academics like? You know, I, I had a difficult childhood, um, a lot of issues in my family that school both a haven and also a place that I didn't always feel comfortable in because I, I, being an American Indian, um, 
in a school that was predominantly Mexican-American and white, there were a lot of prejudices I had to deal with in school. And so I actually didn't like school very much. And I didn't like the lessons I was being taught in particular when, um, I mean, there's one memory that will always stick with uh, high school, Arizona, kind of civics class where they taught the Zunis were savages. And I said, we're not savages. You know, if the Spaniards came to your door and we're going to rape and kill you, you would kill Esteban more too. That's like a natural response. And instead of engaging in discussion, I got kicked out of the class in after school suspension. So I've always kind of had a love-hate relationship. I've always loved books. I mean, books more than anything saved me from a difficult childhood. You know, you could always open up and go to a different world when your own personal world was traumatic. So I've always loved books. And, you know, that's the one thing my mom always did for us is she took us to the library. And school, to some extent, was a haven for me because I could get away from home. And I was always in after school sports and in clubs and... But in terms of like favorite teachers, I don't think I had one. <laughs> you know, I was always seen as a difficult child because um, part of my being a Zuni and being my dad's child, I didn't just take things. I would always fight back. So if I saw injustice, I would speak up to it. And, you know, people don't always like that too much. <laughs> well, it sounds like you really loved like learning but it was this institution that I mean justifiably right like this institution is teaching things from a very westernized perspective that is oftentimes contradictory to your own lived experience and it makes sense that you would fight against that yeah very much so especially in the district that I went to school where they they you know they conform and, but they wanted you to buy into the history they were teaching. And I was someone, luckily, who always got to go back and forth to my reservation and see how things really were and um, got to participate in my ceremonies. And so I had that knowledge and that strength to come from and say, like, no, that's not who we are. So, and I think, like, many kids don't fight back. They just accept it. And so you see high dropout rates among Mexican-American and Native American kids because it's not a comfortable place. And for me, I always knew education was the only way out from the poverty and the um, addiction in my home. So I had to find a way to succeed. And luckily, I was just naturally, you know, given a natural intellect to be able to do well, even if I like the teachers and the teachers didn't like me. (laughs) Right. So, you know, so you go to school, the system is not great, but you really enjoy learning. And so you get through high school and then you get into Notre Dame and you double major in psychology and Japanese. So what led you to both of those majors? I, I see where the psychology is still very relevant, but I am curious if you still are using any of the Japanese. Only with my sister, who also double majored um, in Japanese. But 
we did it for very different reasons. For me, having come from poverty, my idea was I was going to go business and I was going to go into international business. (laughs) Obviously that work out. But um, so I went to Japan and I studied for a year in Japan. And um, so it was just easy to get the second major in Japanese as I had spent the year in Japan and I took Japanese for the three that I was at Notre Dame. I graduated a semester early, so I finished in three and a half years. Mm-hmm. So that's why. And now I, my sister and I will text each other things in Japanese every now and then. But other than that, I don't really get much opportunity to use. <laughs> that's so fun though. So then what yeah. led you to doing the psychology bachelors? Were you just interested in psychology at the start? Yeah, I mean, I think part of curiosity has always been in why things are the way they are and why people act the way they do. And in particular, I wanted to know like how to help people who are struggling. That's always been a really strong motivation for me. So psychology, you know, at first I thought I'd be more like a clinical psychologist. Um, but when I graduated from Notre Dame, I started working directly with kids as a supervisor of a residential treatment center for boys in New Mexico. And then I became a juvenile probation officer working with the kids directly. And I realized clinical was not for me because um, it's just hard for me to have so many issues in my own family and my own life and then be working with kids who are facing the same issues. And sometimes it gets really hard to separate. And so I decided I needed to be more research focused rather than clinically focused. And um, so I started in human development and family life, and then I really switched over to the psych department and got the PhD in cognitive. But it was only after working for years, working directly with kids. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting too, because I feel like so many people in academia, it's just that pipeline, right? Of, you know, bachelor's to master's to PhD to postdoc. And then, you know, now you're have a job, but you actually got a little bit of experience, like quote unquote on the outside. Right. And I am curious, do you feel like having that sort of quote unquote outside experience gives you a different perspective on academia compared to people who just sort of went through the pipeline? Well, I think the person, it definitely gave me more strength than I had just gone straight from Notre Dame to the University of Kansas into a PhD program because uh, there were plenty of times in my PhD program felt many of us feel like answers. One, you don't belong smart enough to be here. And I think straight into the program, I wouldn't have graduated because I, I didn't have the maturity and knowledge of why I was there to keep me there. Yeah. Leaving, working for eight years, um, it definitely gave me a lot more tools to uh, overcome and the adversity and the self-doubt, number one doubt. So be also like, I mean, I one key memory I have is like, there was a point where I just wanted to get out of the program. I was like, I don't need this. I can go back to work. I can make a living. Um, and I had this dream where I was, when I was a juvenile probation officer, you'd have to get in the car, you'd have to log in, tell them where you're going and everything. 
And I had a dream that I got in the car and I just couldn't make myself tell them who I was and where I was going. And like, I took that dream as telling me like, you can't quit now. You're almost done. You're ABD, just get it done, <laughs> you know? So um, I think like without these past experiences of knowing what I would be going back to, it definitely gave me the strength to finish. And then also it gave me the passion because having worked in the field, I knew like, what were the, the solutions for kids like me are always, it's a pipeline to prison. And that was always my passion and my goal was to do research that could find alternative pathways for kids who were coming from the most at-risk environments. Because when you're a probation officer or when you're working with kids who are in trouble, you're always looking for the strengths you can draw on to help them. And usually it's like, there's two things they look at. Do you have a good family? Um, and do you have, it, or do you have any kind of external support system? And the rules for once you're in trouble with the law are they have to be on house arrest if you're not in custody. And it just would strike me as like the most ridiculous thing to tell this child who's living in a home where there's addiction, substance abuse, there's no electricity, there's no running water. Um, you have to be on house arrest and don't use and everybody else around you is using. You know, that's what it's like for many of the kids on the reservations, unfortunately. And in um, some of the high poverty neighborhoods in the Tucson area where I was working. And I, I don't mean to stereotype because there's strengths there too, um, but they're not the types of strengths that we would normally think of when we're think when we figure out a pathway for a child out of, um, out of a criminal lifestyle into a more productive lifestyle. So when you were doing some of that work, uh, working with kids and stuff, what were some of those strengths that you had noticed in those communities? Well, the number one thing I would try to teach the kids their actual histories of their people. Because back when I was working with kids, it was many years ago now, you know, there was a big rise in um, gangs based on race. So brown pride and uh, sureños, I don't even know if they exist anymore, but they were based on, they were supposedly based on pride in Mexican American pride, um, native pride, brown pride. And I was like, this is not who you guys are. And I would try to tell them what it would actually mean to have pride in your culture, in who you are, what your ancestors taught you. And the kids would always say, you're crazy, miss. Nobody talks to us like that. And I'm like, yeah, well, every, everybody should be crazy because this is the true history, but they are not teaching it to you in school. And so you have these ideas of what it means, but that's not who you are at all. And so I think just, you know, and it's really sad to me to see like, Finally, school districts were starting to teach ethnic studies, um, Mexicano studies in particular, and the state of Arizona outlawed it, saying that it was making people anti-American. I'm like, it's not anti-American to be proud of who you are and where you come, came from, where you come from. So I think it, it can do a lot to have to change the message for children, to have them see themselves differently. So I, I, that's why I say I always come from a strengths perspective in my research, which is to focus on the ways, our way, how our ways of knowing, our histories can support our children in succeeding in this Western world. Because I think we need that connection in order to be able to succeed in this Western world. 
Um, but too often the narrative is, has been that native culture, Mexican culture, African-American culture are detrimental to our success. And they're not at all. I mean, they, in the case of American Indians, our language, our spirit, spiritual practices have actually been outlawed. And so we took them underground and we still have them, but not as, not as strongly as we would hope, but there's definitely revitalization movements today. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cultural identity is so important for anyone to have, right? And it's interesting because I see a little bit of an intersection with some of my work in body image because, uh, you know, typically when we see like racial ethnic differences, usually in white women versus women of color, what we really observe is that, you know, for women of color, typically these studies are done with black who have, you know, a stronger sense of cultural identity, who, you know, feel more positively about being Black, they have way better body image than the average white woman. And it's probably because when you actually develop that strong cultural identity, right, like you're also realizing that we live in a society that promotes these white standards of beauty. And, you know, when you don't feel very good about being a woman of color, it probably makes you feel even worse about your body. So that's just a sort of crossover that I just see that I wanted to mention. Yeah, for sure. I think anytime you have a strong sense of who you are and where you can you where you come from, it helps you to deal with the broad, the media pressure that's out there to look a different way, be a certain way. And, and you can just say like, well, that's not who I am, right? Versus internalizing it. Yeah. Well, it's just crazy how there's something that's so radical about just loving yourself and who you are and where you came from. It's sort of unfortunate that that's something that is sort of seen as radicalized, right? <laughs> yeah, or that you're you're a weird one for being that way. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, well, you know, what should be weird is people who don't like themselves. Like, you know, everyone should develop this sense of love and, you know, a love for not just themselves, but their history and where they came from and an appreciation for the histories of those around them. Like, mm -hmm. I can't get over how, like, it's so ironic, isn't it? That like learning about American Indian history could ever be construed as anti-American. It, it just sounds so silly to even say. Right. Yeah. So just to shift gears a little bit, I am so curious because when I was reviewing your CV, I see that you've had some work working on a recent policy brief uh, concerning, you know, American Indian youth during the pandemic. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how COVID-19 has sort of differentially impacted American Indian and Alaska Native communities. Yes, well, because of the history of colonization, we've already, we were in a bad situation to begin with in terms of health. You know, we have uh, high mortality rates, high infant mortality. Um, we die young, <laughs> you know, our average, you're gonna be 65 probably by the time you die on average um, in many American Indian communities. In fact, my husband and I, he's also American Indian. We both lost our fathers before they were 65. And that's the norm in our communities. Um, our, our people die very young. So when COVID-19 hit, we were not prepared. We didn't have the health services needed to do intervention and prevention work, um, much less to save people. Although 
uh, I have to say White Mountain Apache has done a really good job of going out and um, taking people into the community with pulsometers to measure their blood oxygen levels. And that's done a lot to turn things around because also for American Indians, we don't go to the doctor until it's like really critical, you know? And so uh, many people didn't even realize how sick they were until community members went out and did outreach and tested them and said, wow, you, you're, you have a really low blood oxygen level. You should be in the hospital. But most of the elders would say, no, no, I'm fine. I just need to lay down, you know? So I think it's been very devastating. One, because we have smaller populations to begin with. We're less than 1% of the U.S. population. And yet, you know, our people were being hit at rates of 10% within the state of New Mexico. I think the majority of COVID cases were American Indians. Um, Navajo Nation just devastated. And then the whole impact of the pandemic, which was that, you know, everything closed down. Well, when you close down in a community that already has very limited access to grocery stores, to running water, uh, to broadband internet services, that's just devastating. Has it going to have a devastating educational impact on our children? And it can also bring opportunities to return back to original instruction and um, getting the kids re-engaged in arts and culture. But unfortunately, during a pandemic, that's often not the time when we return to traditional ways of being and teaching. Um, so just overall, I think for every person who's lost their life to COVID-19, it's a devastating impact. For tribes, it's definitely been a devastating impact. And because it hits our elders so hard and our elders are frequently the last holders of language, um, oral histories, traditions, spiritual practices, those are losses that can never be recovered because we are, we are oral people. We don't write things down. And for many of our tribes, particularly the Pueblos, only certain people can have certain knowledge. So things are not written down. And if the holder of that knowledge dies before um, he can pass it on to the next person who will be the keeper of that knowledge. It's just gone forever. And so I don't think we can ever really calculate how much we've lost because of COVID, but the losses have been, I would say, staggering. So for the listeners who might not really understand the link between academia and policy, can you explain a little bit about, you know, what is a policy brief and what, what is the aim of doing one? Well, for me, you know, I always wanted an education to make a difference, to actually change how the United States government treats American Indians. So to me, it was always uh, a natural thing that I would do policy work in addition to my basic research. So policy, policy briefs are when you're doing research, but you're basically doing it with a specific purpose in mind. You want to inform a specific US government policy or school policy or state policy. And you wanna give them all the knowledge you possibly can based on all the research that's out there to help them develop best practices or change the policy or hopefully in some cases change the law 
right? When there are laws that are biased, which we know there are plenty, um, you want to try to use your research and your knowledge to make a difference. Right. So basically a policy brief is when a researcher or a team of researchers puts together research with the aim of helping to inform policy. So in the case of the policy brief that you worked on, you and these other researchers were doing work about how COVID-19 is sort of differentially impacting American Indian and Alaska Native communities it, with the hopes that policymakers will read that and it will inform them to make more culturally conscious policy as a result. Right. Right. You're right. And, and even just to be aware of like why COVID-19 was going to be so devastating for educational outcomes of American Indian children. Right. Um, I just recently read a, an article where they were talking about um, this one district in northern Arizona. They the teachers had to start doing the bus runs to bring the food to the kids because so many children rely on their school lunches, you know, for their daily food. And the teachers were saying, oh my gosh, we did not know the poverty on the reservations out here. We did not know how these kids were living. And like, now we know we have to be doing so much more for these kids. And I've always felt that way myself. Like every person who teaches in these high poverty areas should actually go to their students' homes and see what they're living with. Because, you know, I worked in schools where people would be upset because the child didn't have a pencil and they would kick him out of the classroom. And I'm like, do you know where this kid just came from? The fact that he made it to school today, he should get a hug, not be told, but you didn't bring your pencil. I'm like, so, and they, they were actually were recommending like more, all teachers should do this. And I'm like, yes, thank you. All teachers should go see where these kids are living so that they, you know, you're going to open your heart so much more to see like this kid is overcoming extreme adversity to get here and they a lot of these kids are on the bus for like hours so i think covid can be good in a lot of ways in some ways can it's opening eyes to what the world is really like and the disparities that exist and we already have a movement towards social justice and hopefully this just really helps us push that even further yeah well, it's letting the sort of genie out of the bottle, right? And I think I've read before that the majority of teachers are fall into the demographic of being white women. And, you know, as a white woman myself, it's like I come from this position of privilege where, you know, I've been very fortunate in my life that, you know, I've really only seen abject poverty as a bystander once in my life. My father grew up in a house that didn't have a floor. Um, and so I saw that when I was a little kid, when I would visit his parents and where he was from. And it was just so unlike anything I had ever seen before. But growing up, that was always just one memory, right? It wasn't something that I lived with every day. And so I think that in a way, this is a good wake up call for teachers and educators to really see, you know, students live like this and we need to be understanding of that and compassionate towards it and actually do something about it too, right? Like compassion is great, but without action, it, it's sort of meaningless, right? Yeah, but I think we're also asking a lot from teachers already um, yeah. as we cut funds. So if anything, I would hope the federal government will start to recognize 
how incredible difficult, incredibly difficult it is to be a teacher and give more support and more salary to them. Because, you know, again, it's always going to fall on the teacher to do more, to try to help these kids. And that's not fair. That's not a fair position to them at all, because it's incredibly stressful. So Monica, one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is that, you know, I read a statistic that less than 1% of individuals who have doctorates are American Indian. So obviously for you as an American Indian woman, I can only imagine that in academia, there have probably been times where you felt isolated. Um, you know, hopefully I'm not projecting that onto you, but I would just think given the numbers, that seems like a, a fairly accurate guess. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit maybe to students of color who are listening to this or anyone who's listening to this who maybe feels isolated and alone in the education system or as an academic, what are things that you have done that have helped you combat those feelings? And, you know, can you give any sort of encouragement towards people who may be feeling that way? Yeah, I think it, like I said um, earlier, there was a time where I just said, I've had enough, I'm getting out of here, I'm not doing this anymore. And I think what's always kept me strong is, like I said, because I had worked before I came and to get my PhD, I had a lot of passion. I knew I wanted to make a difference for children. And the number one saving grace of academia for me has always been the fact that I get to do the research in my communities, not always, but if I'm funding it, I'm in my I'm in American Indian community, not the Zuni community in particular, but I'm working in minority communities, American Indian community. And I work directly with the participants. I always collect the data. I always work with the children. Anytime I feel like I don't want to be here anymore, and I go out into my community and I work with the kids and I see their beauty and their happiness and how just joyful they are to have me working with them, to see me. Um, that just reminds me why I'm doing, I put up with all the other things that can really destroy you as a person, like teaching evals. I don't even read my teaching evals more. I know I'm a good teacher, but every semester somebody just totally hates me. And I'm like, you know, part of it's me, I'm sure, but part of it is racism, prejudice. Like, you know, I was, I've read evals where somebody said, who do you are to tell me I don't know how to write? And I'm like, uh, the professor, <laughs> but, you know, so it's always, there's always going to be people out there who want to tear you down, but turn, my advice is to turn to your people, your family, the people who love you, who see you, your beauty, and listen to them. Don't listen to all the people that are out there who are going to try to say you don't belong here. Because unfortunately, there, there is racism in the system. We can't deny that. And it's very, I'm definitely the only American Indian professor teaching undergraduate statistics. Most of our professors are in American Indian studies, education. We have one engineering professor. Um, I'm really proud of her here at ASU. Um, but most of us, you don't see very many American Indians at the front of the classroom teaching. So 
it is, it can be a lonely place, but I always said I'm getting my degree for all the students who are like, who are like me and feel like they don't belong here because I want them to see that they do belong here. They can make a difference. And, you know, when you feel like you're not making a difference, go back to the community about what you're doing and you're going to get so much positive feedback. They're going to be like, wow, we're so proud of you. We're so impressed of all the work you're doing. I mean, I just, I question myself all the time. And on Friday, I gave a talk to educators at Cochi de Pueblo. And they were like, so grateful for what I felt was like basic information that I was giving them. And they were like, we have never had anybody tell us these things. We, we understand our kids so much more now. So, I mean, you have so much power. There's so many doors trying to keep you out. But if you can get through that door and you can stay there and you can develop your expertise, you have so much power to go back and bring that knowledge to your communities and make a difference. So don't ever feel like you don't belong. I mean, you will feel like you don't belong, but don't believe it. <laughs> you know, Believe in your passion and why you're here and the difference you want to make. Because believe me, when you start working in the communities, you will be making more difference than you'll ever know. I have to remind myself of that too. That was absolutely beautifully said, Monica. I really love that. It resonates with me so much. The passion that you have for your work and the way you have just dedicated your career to giving back to your community is just so admirable. I just feel it's fantastic. Well, thank you. I won't say it's been easy. I mean, that's the hard part of academia. There's there's these rubrics and standards that you have to meet. And I honestly can say like, I've never met them. I've never met the westernized standards of who I'm supposed to be as an academic. I, I just, I can't because of the fact that I'm so invested of being in my communities and bringing this knowledge to my communities, making a difference at the policy level. And in order for there to be more scholars of color or, or alternative identities, whatever it may be, we have to open the doors to our to have a significant impact. So, I mean, I'm on the personnel committee now and I'm, I'm always saying like, well, what, whose impact are we talking about? Because if you want to go on Google Scholar or whatever, or the heat index, I don't have a great heat index. But like I just said, I went and talked to this community and they were like, people were like in tears saying, we're so grateful to you. You've made such an impact, <laughs> you know? So it's like, who makes these judgments of a person's value that I think we really have to question how we determine what success, what is success in academia? It's, it, to me, it's still arbitrary. I don't care if we have a whole heat, heat index or not. It's really arbitrary. <laughs> well, it's so important to develop your own personal definition of success. And it sounds like, you know, <laughs> I really like your definition of success a lot more than any heat index or number of citations because you're out there, you know, you're really touching people's hearts and you're doing good work that is impacting communities who need it. And I think that that is, is really great. I think it's really fantastic what you've done. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so Monica, I think that it's time for us to start wrapping up. So I would like to end with three 
rapid fire questions. And these ones are going to be a little bit deeper. They're going to get a little bit more at your own sort of personal philosophy. And, you know, with these, feel free to, you know, go into a little more detail. They don't have to be totally off the top of the head, but I'm excited to hear what you say. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. So question number one is, what has been your greatest day as an academic? I think I've had two greatest days. First greatest day was when I received a Ford pre-doctoral fellowship. That allowed me to continue on in my doctoral studies. So that was a great day, opening that letter and seeing I had won. The second greatest day is when I got the phone call telling me that I had been selected as a William T. Grant Scholar. That was a beautiful day. We were in New York City. We went to Central Park. We went ice skating and just celebrated that I had won this incredible award that never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I would get. So that was absolutely fantastic and so affirming of the work that I had been doing. I love that. Question number two is, what would be your anti-motto? So what would be just the worst advice you could give someone? So the opposite of what your best advice is. <laughs> My gosh, there's so many things I've told people that probably they count as their worst advice ever. But <laughs> I would say the absolute number one worst thing you could say to someone is do it like I do it or be like me because everybody's unique. Everybody has their own passion, their own journey, their own way to get there. And sadly, I've been misguided in giving people advice too, because I thought, you know, the publisher perish and focus on academics. And now I realize that that's just ridiculous. You have to find your own way, your own path and your own time. And we have to create spaces in academia so that people can do that. And unfortunately, we, we've really failed at that. And so I have to say now that I have tenure, I feel like I can miss more than I could pre-term, but I definitely want to be more welcoming of people from all lifestyles, backgrounds, and helping them find their pathway through academia. It doesn't, definitely don't be like me. <laughs> don't be like me. And, um, and I want to change the message to each person's pathway is their journey and it's how it needs to be. And it's, it may feel right now in this moment, but it's okay. And you're going to find your way. I love that. Don't be like me. It's so simple. <laughs> All right. The last question, Monica, is what is one rule that you would want everyone to follow? Well, I guess it would be the opposite of that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> be yourself. Um, be proud of yourself, love yourself. That's the number one thing. I think love yourself, love yourself because we get so many messages that make you not love yourself. So I really am trying to change my message to being one of love and acceptance, self-acceptance. Um, cause I think that goes a long way towards changing the world. I love that. It all starts from within, right? Yeah. Monica, I just want to say thank you so much. You have been such a joy to have with me today. Uh, before we go, would you like to say any final words? Is there any projects you're looking to promote or anything or just a thank you or whatever? This is your, your last chance to just say whatever you want. No, I'm just 
grateful to have the chance to talk and share my experiences. And I'm definitely here for anybody who's struggling. You know, I've definitely had my own struggles and I'm still here and I managed to get tenure. So I'm really trying to change um, the message that people get and just help, help people to find their way, basically. Beautiful. Well, everyone, that was our conversation with Dr. Monica Teslakai. Her information is going to be in a slide following this podcast or in our show notes. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you would like to connect with today's podcast guests, please email the following. For Aubrey Hoffer, email alhoffer at asu.edu. For Monica Teslakai, email monica.teslikai at asu.edu. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesanfordschool.asu.edu forward slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues.